they said to him, Where will you have us prepared? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat Passover, the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he received, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it was determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And this is Jesus' final meal with his disciples before he goes to that cross. And one of his parting words was, You see me here reclined at this table, and you see the servants coming and going, tending to our needs. But in reality, I really am here among you as the one who is serving you. Because in the very next day, he will offer the ultimate service. He will offer the ultimate meal. He will do the most sacrificial, serving, humbling thing that could ever be done. That God in all his glory, in honor and splendor, absolute ontological superiority, he is God, would actually come down to suffer and die for you and for them in that table. Those who are actually debating about who's the greatest. The irony, the contrast, the misappropriation of the proportion is amazing. That here they are bickering about who's greater. When Jesus is about to humiliate himself and suffer beyond anything that could be compared to regular human suffering. 
And he says, it might look like I'm at the head of the table because I am the teacher and you're my disciples. But I'm reclined here only for a few more minutes before I have to go to that cross. And so here we are in the final section of looking at how we should eat like Jesus. I'd like to draw your attention this morning to three tables. There are three types of tables that a healthy church should have. These three tables mark what would be us faithfully uh, committing to fulfill the ministry that Jesus himself uh, began, accomplished, modeled, and is also distributed to us as a church today. These tables are important. And they are this. this. One is the common table, the covenant table and the consummate table. So there is a common table. That's where you eat breakfast. That's where you spill your milk. That's where all the crumbs are. That's your life. That's just the normal ebbs and flows of regular existence. We all have a table at home. It's a very important table. Don't ever look at it just as a slab of wood. It's not. I mean, after all, Jesus offered himself on a slab of wood. But that changed the world, didn't it? There's a second table. This table is called a covenant table. And it's here before you this morning. And yes, it is still just a slab of wood. But it's so much more. Just like that cross wasn't really anything special until the Son of God was laid upon it. And the third and the final table is this thing called the consummate table. Consummate meaning the end, the climax. Sunum bonum of it all. The final table. There is one more table. I don't know, but the place it's described have streets of gold. And I don't know what the tables are made out of up there. But there is one more table. The consummate table. And these three tables, if we can have the perspective to know them, to see them relate in our lives, it will make us as a church healthy, eternal, wise, loving. We have perspective. God has given us a telescope. He's given us binoculars. He's given us something to see the beginning from the end. And it all revolves around these simple, simple things of table and food and drink. See, Isaiah 25 says it this way. On the mountain of the Lord, there will be a rich feast of food, rich food and aged, well-aged wine. And it says, at that point, Isaiah says, when that happens, when God lays out his final table, he will swallow up the covering that is over all the people. The veil that lays over the dead corpse of all humanity. We are told he will swallow up death forever. That we will sit down and eat with Jesus again. And the one thing he will eat, he will consume, is our death. He will drink that down like water. These three tables relate in order. That is to say, personally, socially, someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, doesn't love him or even understand anything of the gospel. For example, someone just before the service showed me a newspaper clipping in which it was funny because it's kind of relevant to the class about biblical justice, social justice, where um, the clipping said, see, Jesus was all about social justice as 
it should not be defined, but social justice as the world defines it. Jesus was all about it because of the rich young ruler, the wealthy man that he told him to give all his stuff away, uh, which is so ironic because just last week we talked about that verse. But in the clipping he said, well, I never actually read that passage, but this is what I think about it. Right? Now, now just, just let that sink in. Right? Is, that, is that man, whoever wrote that op-ed, is he going to receive a flyer in his mailbox to be invited to the Lord's table and he's going to read it and drop everything he's doing and say, I need to be there for that. He can't even flip open the scriptures to find out actually what Jesus Christ would say on a matter. I very well doubt that he would ever come to this table just because he got some flyer in the mail. He has probably 50 or 60 or 70 other things he would rather do before doing that. But see, a healthy church, what we would aim to be is to understand these tables. That it's not just this table. There's a common table. And they work socially. If someone's to come to Christ, there's a good chance that they have heard of him, known him, seen or exemplified or sensed something of his glorious presence in life around a table with someone else. Not this table, not coming to church on a Sunday, but your table, or Panera Bread table, some restaurant, some place. Children, born up in a Christian home. Not until they're older do they even come to this table. They actually eat dinner with their parents for 12, 13 years maybe. Three meals a day. They are brought along to be discipled into Christ at the common table before they even would reach the covenant table. This communion, this table in which we covenant to say that we are with the Lord and we are with one another. But you don't get there without actually knowing Jesus in a common way with real people that know him and can explain him to you and show him to you and love you like he would love you. But that can't happen through a flyer or an email or some impersonal interchange. It happens through this, the first table, the common table. It happens through life. It happens through sharing life with somebody. Paul says we would <coughs> not only give you the gospel, not only share you the gospel, but our own lives as well. That was how the Apostle Paul lived his ministry. Not only do I just want to give you the gospel, I want to give you my life. I want to share my life with you. I want to show you what it's like to walk with Jesus. I will invite you to my table. You will see me. You will know me. And in some way you will know Christ. That's actually how it works. So these tables work together that way. The first one is the common table. But then the second part is this table, this covenant table before us today. If you are here at this table, you are looking to a final table, that consummate table. You are making a promise with the church that you are in, these people that know you, that you lock arms together to walk together in a community in this life so that you would arrive sometime in millennia past to be at this final table, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the consummate meal that ends it all. And Jesus teaches it here where he says, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's there with his men now, 
eating a table like this. And he says, the next time I do this, it will be at that consummate table, that final table. I will not eat of the fruit of the vine, drink of the fruit of the vine, until that table comes. So Jesus is waiting for that. <coughs> this common table, the covenant table, and this consummate table interlaces our lives socially and all of human history chronologically. So, many years ago, we would say almost 20 years or so in the 1990s, the promise keepers came to Syracuse. And uh, if you don't know anything about the promise keepers, it's like an evangelical ministry to strengthen men to be more godly and committed uh, to their families and children. Their wives. So in the 1990s, this um, ministry was coming into the town, Syracuse. And, well, it had an effect that no one else really knew about. It was very small and consequential as far as the rest of things go. But it's an amazing story that opens up what this looks like. A very angry, feminist, uh, lesbian woman wrote an op-ed in the local paper saying that the promise keeper's title was opposed to democracy. It was terrible. And it was a huge fluster. And so, some elder at a local church there in Syracuse read that paper, came to his elder board meeting at his church, and threw that paper down on the table and said to his pastor, we need to do something about this. That's wrong. Which in short means, pastor, you need to do something about this. That's wrong. <laughs> and that pastor's name was Ken Smith. Ken Smith actually used to live in this area in western Pennsylvania for a while. He's tied closely with the seminary that I studied in. His wife's name was Floyd. The angry feminine lesbian is Rosaria Butterfield, who is a professor of English studies at the University of Syracuse. So Ken wrote a letter back personally to her, addressing her op-ed. Have you ever considered this point and that point and this point and that point? As Rosaria tells the story, she said that letter bothered her because it wasn't angry and it wasn't praiseworthy. It was just truly addressing her arguments, and she, a university professor, likes thinking clearly and likes argumentation, and doesn't actually like it when people call her out on her faulty presuppositions. And that's exactly what this pastor did. And it got under her skin, because she got many angry letters and many sorts of hate mail. But this one, she didn't throw in the garbage. She read it again, and she read it again, and she read it again, because there was substance to the argumentation he was laying before her. And so she reached out to him. And they began to talk and correspond back and forth. And the questions became longer and longer, and Ken's answers became longer and longer. Until he says this, at one point in their interchange, over a period of time, there was one more question she asked me, and I responded by saying, Rosaria, I think the best way to answer that question would be in front of the fireplace after one of my wife's great dinners. 
And she took him up on that offer. And what transpired is over a hundred meals. Over the course of multiple years. She was with them. What happened was a few questions. And what changed is what Ken would say, I fell in love with her. My wife and I loved her. And we enjoyed our time together. And it was debated. It was hot. Conversations. It was feisty. There was a lot of debate, a lot of pushback. But Rosaria said what was unique about this is every time we ended by reading the scriptures and praying and singing psalms. And I kept coming back, she said. What resulted was there were two ulterior motives between them, as they tell the story now, because they're lifelong friends. See, Rosaria had an ulterior motive because she was working on a book as a university professor. She wanted to create a book to analyze the scriptures hermeneutically from within, show their assuming ridiculous inconsistencies, and destroy the body of literature from within. That was her trained specialty as an English professor, to work through hermeneutics to show a written document to be in all its faults and critical uh, evaluations to be faulty. And that's what she was doing, as anyone else throughout all of church history has tried to do before. And she thought, I'll give it a try too. And so Ken was her free research partner, this pastor, who actually believed the scriptures. And so she is engaging all this conversation because she's thinking she's just learning so much more that she's going to write this wonderful book that's going to blow it all up. Now Ken claims that he had ultimate uh, ulterior motives as well in the story. He wasn't so much concerned with Rosaria at first because he figured her to be very hard in her ways, educated in perfect human secularism, the most ivory tower intellectual person with all of the wrong assumptions that would never want to take the gospel in as the authoritative word of God. But he thought if he could get to know her better, build rapport with her, his hope was to get inside of her class and present the whole body of literature from the scriptures to her students. He wanted to minister to her students. So they both had ulterior motives and they're both doing this dinner thing. They're around the common table. They're in she was in his house for many, many years. But the hospitality, she said, is what changed everything. After a hundred meals or so, she said, I wasn't Ken's project. I was Ken's neighbor. This was not friendship evangelism. This was friendship. And that changed her. He didn't throw me away. He didn't see me as not useful. When he saw that I wasn't maybe going to be converted, or maybe I wasn't going to be part of his church, he didn't ignore me. He's a pastor, she said. He's got a lot of time taking him other directions. Why would he give me so much time? But he kept giving me time. And it paused her. It paused her very much. And eventually he got her to read it for herself. And of course, she's writing this book. She's planning on reading through the whole Bible multiple times over to find all of the inconsistencies. And so she was reading the scriptures for hours, sometimes throughout the day. And then two years later, what resulted from that small meal at his house, 
she came to the covenant table. What began at that common table with a real person, with real questions, and real debate, but real love, real honesty, closing it with real prayer. And the thing that bothered Rosaria, she said, is that unlike in my world, the lesbian secular world, if we don't know something, or if we don't have peace about something, we have no place to rest. But every time after our debates, even the matter was still open and not settled between us, he would always end with prayer and singing psalms. There was something about giving it to Christ that I saw there. And you don't get that anywhere else. There's nowhere else she could have learned that. Without that common table, she would have never known that. There is no intellectual argument. There is no resource or journal or email. She had to be there with them. She had to learn. She said, I did not know what it was to be a woman. Floyd, his wife, she says, taught me to be a woman. And here I am, the professor of women's studies at the University of Syracuse. I was a lesbian. I did not know what it even was to be a woman. And I, she said, I realized I went down that road because I had no idea even of what femininity was and how beautiful and glorious and honorable it was. And I, she says, I worked with some of the most intellectually cha uh, challenging people, very smart women, very intimidating women, other women in her university. But when she was around Floyd, she had nothing to say. This woman, she said, the way she lived her life, that she gave herself to every eternal being that was around her. There was this, this feminine life-givingness that came from her. The reason Eve was named life in Genesis, this femininity that no matter who was near her, all the messy people that would come in and, so, in and out of Ken's house, not all of them clean Christians, she would see. But Floyd was just giving herself to every eternal being she was near. And that changed her. She said, that's beautiful femininity. It altered her mind. But you, she couldn't learn that anywhere else except the common table. And here it was that that time, two years later, led her to the covenant table. And she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And she actually became part of the covenant of God. See, God's calling us to this type of service. It's, it's just evidently clear. It's clearer than most other things you could ever find throughout the Word of God. And there might be many concerns that say, how could I do something like that? Do, do I have the time to really do something like that? Well, there's 21 meals in a week. And you're already doing them anyway. There you go. You don't have to change your schedule at all. You just, 21 meals, take a couple of them, and say, hey, we're going to have so-and-so over. Or we're going to meet so-and-so. Or do what Jesus did and just invite yourself to someone else's house. See how that goes. You could try. But the reality is, you don't need to change your schedule at all. You could walk out of this room right now. Do nothing to your schedule. But alter your thinking. See what Jesus is saying. And realize you have 21 appointments that could always be filled at some point with a little bit of love, prayer, and intentionality. I can't do this with people. It makes me uncomfortable. Well, food makes things more relaxing. There is this thing called rest and digest. If you're eating food, all of a sudden things become a little more relaxed. Say, well, I'm not really concerned or I'm not really hospitable or I don't know if I could do it this way. It's not about the plates. It's not about the forks. It's not about the food. It's about the person. If you remember it's about the person, everything else doesn't matter. In my dining room, the window is cracked. 
It's been cracked since I got that house. And I don't know if I'm going to replace it or maybe tear it down and put an addition through that wall. I don't know, but if you come over, we can look at the crack in my window. And if that bothers you, I'll shut the blinds. Let me know ahead of time. But other than that, it doesn't matter. It's about the people. It's about the people. And when, that, when we have that as an idea of us as a church, see, the beautiful thing is she felt comfortable. He didn't give up one ground to her as far as what she thought. But she kept coming back because Jesus was able to balance this beautifully. Hold to truth. Hold the line. Yet sinners flock to him. True, faithful, gospel. Yet it says in Luke 5, 1, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near as he was eating. It can be done. And it leads to the covenant table. If we ever say, well, the church seems so much more like an organization. It's so bureaucratic and it's just like this formal thing. This undoes all of that. The organization of the church becomes not so much an organization, but a community of people. And that community of people is a covenant community because from there we've been given a table, a covenant table. And this covenant table is where Jesus lays it out. In verse 14 he says, When the hour came to recline at the table, for he had to recline, it was a Jewish custom for Passover that you would have to recline on one arm with a cushion, a low table, to you, and you would all let your feet hang to the side, and you would go around this table like a horseshoe of bodies, except the table would be particularly long, so one side of it would protrude out of the other people seated, so that the servants could come and get access to the top of the table, to serve the table, while there's a horseshoe of people around. The seating in this arrangement was very important. It was very much based on honor and uh, prestige. The older ones, the ones who were more educated, would be seated at the higher place. That's the, pretty much the way it worked in the Jewish community. Well, education, older, those are two places of unique honor in which it would alter your seating at something like this. We know that Jesus was sitting, reclining, next to John. John was evidently on his right side because we're told that John leaned left to him. And then we know that Judas was nearby as well because Jesus in John whispers to Judas saying, what you're about to do, go do. And no one else in all the disciples even knew about it. So we know something about the seating, that it would have to be Jesus, John, Judas, close to one another. And then on the other side of the table, presumably Paul or Peter, because Peter asks in the Gospel of John, what did he say? But the ones on the far end of the horseshoe wouldn't have known any of this. And don't, we don't have anything of their interchange. There was a seating arrangement, and you can tell once we did this uh, reading, you find that Jesus institutes the supper, and then they all debate and fight about who's greater. That's on purpose, because the order of the seating would have been a source of great debate. If you're thinking like the world, if you're thinking, I need to sit closest to Jesus, I need to be in a place of honor, but Jesus undoes all of that in this covenant meal. And it is a covenant meal. What he's doing here is Passover. Passover is the oldest feast of all of Israel. It was given to them before even the law. Before even Moses gave them ten commandments. He first brought them out of Egypt in Exodus 12. And in Exodus 12 he gives them a clear command. Do this. Eat this meal to remember how I delivered you. Seven days of unleavened bread. Sacrifice a lamb. This is the covenant that began a nation. 
And it's a covenant that substituted death for life. Death, the blood on the doorposts of the houses. The lamb was sacrificed. The blood was smeared. They would roast the lamb quickly, eat the lamb inside their homes. And in that moment, the firstborn of all Egypt were killed by the destroyer. God killed everyone outside of the blood. There is a slaying of a blood, bloody lamb and the preservation of life. And anyone outside of the domain of that slaying of the bloody lamb, anyone who's not partaken of the covenant meal of the lamb, dies. So within this covenant, you have life and death by substitution. And not only this eating, but what were they eating? They were eating purity. They were eating perfection. This lamb was a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish. A lamb whose life was not stained, but would be not sustained unto death. Seemingly pure, faultless, spotless creature was destroyed. And God created us out of this necessity. Our nature is a nature of necessity. You and I cannot eat unless we die. If you do not eat, you die. If you do not swallow food, death swallows you. It's an image. It's a reminder. The very first fruit of the tree was the tree of life. Presumably you could eat this one thing and never die. Here we eat all day and we still die. Not only what they ate, but how they ate. They ate as those who were on a hike, as pilgrims. They were told in Exodus 12, with this Passover meal, to eat with their belts on their pants, with their sandals on their feet, with a staff in their hand. They were to roast the food quickly, not boil it so it would be cooked quickly. They were to make bread that was unleavened and not wait for the yeast to rise. They were to have it so it would be preserved and last in their bags longer. They were to eat as though they were on a mission. They were to eat as though they were in a transition. They were to eat as though they were pilgrims. They were fleeing Egypt and going into the wilderness to walk through the wilderness to look for a place called the land of God. And they were to eat that way. And that's the meal that Jesus gave them. Here, renewing it now, calling it a new covenant. You and I have been given this table. How do we eat this table? Do you realize that you are moving somewhere? That this meal is fast food. This is ancient fast food. This is food you eat quickly and you keep moving. Because you were looking for something else. That's discerning the table. He said this, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them and he says, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise he took that cup and after he had eaten it, he said, This is the cup that is poured out for you. It is a new covenant in my blood. So what he did is Jesus reached back, found that Passover, covenantal, sacrificial meal, brought it into his present reality and said, this is it. This is me. Tomorrow I die. My flesh is for you. My blood is for you. 
That lamb, the purity of that lamb, it's all more real. It's a real sacrifice without blemish, the sinless son of God. It is flesh, real human body, not animal for man, man for man. The real flesh of Jesus, that he would give his own life for your life. That is the real blood of Jesus, his own blood for your blood. This real Passover comes as a Passover of the real death. Not just escaping from Egypt and living for a few more years just to die in the wilderness. Jesus is saying this is a new covenant because I am actually accomplishing what was seen through that image of old. Is that I am actually destroying your death. I am actually swallowing up the wrath of God so that you would have propitiation, a passing over. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole entire world. That passing over is now real. That God's wrath does not abide to you at all. And then, it's not that real. It's not as real as it could be. You and I are still going to die. Because from this covenant table, there's still one more table. The consummate table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the place where all be done. For even now, we do not have all of the reality. Even now, we just have bread. He is not in this room. Jesus Christ is not before your eyes. You have not seen the beatific, blessed vision of God yet. But look what he says. With his one hand stretching into the distant past. With the present table before him now. His other hand holds. To the very ancient of times. In which he looks down and says I earnestly. I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He says imagine Jesus at the table. I earnestly desire to eat this Passover. The one in front of you. The one on this table now. I desire to eat this Passover. 2,000 years ago, real, real Passover, real lamb. I desire to eat this Passover with you, and I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He makes them the same. That that real Passover that was with them there that day, this one, he will eat that same thing again in the kingdom of God. It is the same Passover. It's like going up a mountain. And we'll close with this concept, that, that clock is broken, so you guys know how pastors can do this. It's 1048. Colin's smiling, so I know I can keep going. He's like, That's not, you're, you're misinterpreting my smile. The real Passover is like going up a mountain. There's edges to the foothills. Begin to scale the mountain, and you can get to the top of that mountain. The common table is the edge. We see this in our life as a church. No one's going up to the mountain of God, most likely, unless they meet someone at a common table. And though someone actually gives them the life of Christ through flesh, word, and deed, it just doesn't happen. This is us making our way up the mountain. This is us making a covenant between God, saying, I submit to you. You are my Lord. I covenant with you. Hold me fast. And then we covenant with one another 
vertically at this table. And this is us moving up that mountain. Moving up midway through on pilgrimage in this life. You are not static. You are dynamic. You are moving. You are moving either away to God or closer to God. This covenant, this table is an evaluation to know if that's true. Where will you be thousands of years from now? Where are you today? Are you in this covenant table now? Because this table leads up that mountain. Those who don't want this table, those who don't want to say that they are sinners, those who don't want this blood, those who don't want that flesh, they will not find an invitation to this final meal. They will not have the meal at the top of the mountain. As Isaiah 25 says, on the mountain of the Lord, the top of the mountain of the Lord, there will be a feast rich with food, well-aged wine. He will swallow up all death. He will swallow up all destruction. He will swallow up death forever. So we as a church, to be healthy in this, have to see those three tables. And the danger of distorting it all is from dispute. Luke had to end the story by saying, by the way, as Jesus laid this out beautifully, they were bickering about seats. If you are at odds with somebody in this room, that's, this isn't the place. You're not discerning the Lord's body. We can't eat as though we won't eat forever in heaven. If we don't eat that way here, if we don't have that community here, we distort the whole thing. And Jesus said, Rather, the greatest among you will be the youngest. The leader is the one who serves. Who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? And then Jesus says, but I am here eating with you as though I'm the one who serves. Romans 14 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's how we will eat today. Dear Father, it is not about the food. But this food is a test. This table is a test. Has the kingdom of God truly come among us? Is there righteousness, peace, and joy in your spirit here? Yes, Lord. And even bring more so. Lord, pour out your spirit from high upon your holy mountain. We will eat. And you will wipe every tear from our eye. Lord, let your grace that comes from that high and lofty place roll down to us here now. And Father, tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday, May that same grace roll to our tables, to our families, to our neighbors. May our table be like your table. Perfect righteousness and holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.